Buongiorno. This is the Filmlinks Podcast World Tour, a special summer series where we explore filmmaking from around the world. Sono Jonathan. E sono Alex. Questo è la settimana 24. Italia infelice. See, si, Jonathan, and in case you didn't re- uh, recognize it, that was half of our intro in Italian because we're covering Italian neorealism that w- this week. And the title, translated back to English, means unhappy Italy. Because Italian neorealism is not a happy uh, film movement in film history. It uh, comes right after World War II, and it is... Uh, it is quite sad and down to earth. That's very true. It's um, it, it was during a time of, well, not not great times in, in Europe. And there was a lot of existential dread and just practical destruction that happened after the war. And that really comes across in the terms of the filmmaking and uh, filmmaking movement that started and kept shaking up the film industry and the art itself for decades after it was around yeah and it was actually a fairly short uh movement in film history some people call it more of a a moment in film history than even a movement it it can generally fall into the years of 1943 through 1952 and there's somewhere around 26 films i think that kind of uh make up the canon of this movement yeah, yeah, there's a few key filmmakers that are related to it. Uh, De Sica and Fellini and Rossellini, who are the three we're talking about today. Um, but there's others too, like Visconti, who uh, made Obsessione in 1943 or 44, one of the two, and uh, really, really uh, set up Italian filmmaking for its tonality post-World War II, but definitely impacted by the the depression brought on by World War II and the hard times there. As you can see, uh, just by it starting in 1943, it started while Italy was still half under occupation by the Nazis. Right. And because it started in such a uh, kind of, well, very economically tough time for Italy, the filmmaking is very, uh, (laughs) we were talking about it as scrappy. It's kind of, you know, get the shot however you can, get the film however you can, um, and all this kind of stuff, which kind of brings a rawness to the video that actually impacts um, a movement we'll be talking about later in the world tour, uh, actually very soon, the French New Wave. And um, so it's also non-professional actors, and it's just filmmakers with these stories trying to get them told however they can. Right, right. Uh, towards the beginning of the movement, it was uh, mostly influenced by the studios themselves being not in operation because they, they couldn't be because it was in the middle of a war zone. Um, but as as uh, the war came to an end and it started to develop into more of a movement and uh, a coalesced movement between a group of filmmakers, um, it's, it became a repudiation of studios and the big glossy movies that were made both by European studios and Hollywood studios of the time. And then you see uh, different tenants uh, to, uh, evolve and become tent poles of the movement. Uh, they would always shoot on location. They, it was almost always, like you said, non-professional actors, and they would dub the sound over in post, which you can tell 
some of the time, but not all the time when you're watching the, the mo- these movies. Uh, even if you don't speak Italian, uh, it, it's a bit disconcerting to watch the actors uh, speak occasionally because it's all ADR and it's all pretty low budget ADR. Um, they focused on everyday topics and everyday struggles rather than big, grand, fantastical struggles. And they almost universally end unhappy. Right. Um, so let's talk about the three films that we'll be covering today. Uh, the first of which being Rome Open City by Roberto Rossellini. Um, and this film actually started production in the middle of the war. So we're getting some very close to home material about World War II. Uh, and it is the first of a war trilogy that he created. Uh, it was followed by Paisano and the last film was Germany Year Zero. Um, so he is one of the major figures, one of the uh, original figures, um, and Rome Open City still has ripple effects in the film community today, just like our second film. Right. Our next film is Bicycle Thieves from 1948. Once the neorealism movement had been uh, way more underway and had kind of coalesced itself into a proper movement. Um, and it was directed by the famous Vittorio De Sica, probably most famous for this movie itself. Um, famous not only for uh, its own place within the movement, but also just art cinema in general. Uh, it even has influences on modern TV. If anybody's watched Master of None, then you know a lot about Bicycle Thieves because they did an episode basically copying Bicycle Thieves. And you can go read more about that right now on the filmings.com articles. Yeah, it's it's one of the quintessential Italian neorealism films. If you Google Italian neorealism, it's the first one that comes up, the second one being Rome Open City. And our third film is Eight and a Half by Federico Fellini. Uh, it's not technically Italian neorealism. This movie came out in 1963, but Fellini was associated with the Italian neorealists and actually started as an assistant to Rossellini, um, and this film we'll talk about a little bit later, but if we're kind of tracking the arc of, um, you know, conflicts in Italy, uh, we're going from life and death to kind of bourgeois, um, rich people problems. Uh, but it'll be interesting. And it's a very great film, a film about films, which we have talked about before. And we'll continue that discussion today. Right. As long as filmmakers remain obsessed with making films about films, we will keep talking about them. So basically forever. Um, right. And this was uh, Fellini's eighth and a half film. Um, but do you know, Jonathan, whether or not it was hateful? I don't know. I think the I think that half pushes it into spiteful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely spiteful, confused, conflicted, meta. But, you know, meta. We'll, we'll wait Surreal. and see what 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 tarantino does between this and his next film <laughs> we'll see what happens right he's only got two more you know oh please <laughs> please i don't believe that for a second all right well let's get into it um do you want to set us up for rome open city right so rome open city from 1945 uh that was the year this movie came out and that was also the year that world war ii ended and that's what it's about. It's about the Nazi occupation of uh, Rome by the Nazis, obviously. Uh, and that's when the, the film is set. And that's also right after when the film was filmed. 
uh, it was started in uh, 1944. That's when it was shot. And that was right after the Americans had moved into Rome and had taken it back from the Nazis. So this is already a bombed out city in which people are making movies. And the mood of the city is not great. It's definitely depressing. And that's what this movie is. And that's neorealism in general as well. Um, and it's kind of this dark and gritty Casablanca about the lives of these Romans. Um, not big R Roman, <laughs> but, you know, um, <clears throat> these Italians who live in Rome in 1940s uh, trying to survive the Nazi occupation. And uh, it, it's about the these individual Romans kind of trying to work together to survive the uh, Nazi occupation, but not only survive, a lot of them fight back. Um, there's two grown men who are both parts of the actual freedom fighter movement, but there's also a group of kids who we see wandering throughout the film who are part of their own little liberation group, blowing up random Nazi warehouses and stuff throughout the course of the film. Um, so when we say it's dark and gritty, I know a lot of people don't think 1945 and think... Um, dark and gritty outside of a movie that was made within the past 20 years about 1945 but <laughs> right. like like you think you think like saving private ryan or something but you don't think oh a film made in 1945 could be dark and gritty but this is dark and gritty it's all about subterfuge and lying to each other and trying to survive each other um one of the big characters in the film is a priest who um is trying to keep the a lot he, he does a lot of work to keep uh the italians under his care alive um and well and safe but he's also at the same time working for uh the the freedom movement and trying to do his best to uh get the nazis out of rome and protect all these freedom fighters yeah there's a lot of um kind of covering for people and sending secret messages and trying not to get caught with secret messages and um all of these things that builds a lot of suspense and a lot of dread and at the end, a lot of sadness. Um, but that's kind of the, the pervasive mood in Italy. Of course, it's definitely is coming from a country that had much more firsthand experience with the war and the Nazis than Americans did. American film around that time was still generally like positive. It's still, you know, keep your chin up kid like Casablanca and uh, Frank Capra movies and stuff. But in Europe, it felt very different. It did not feel as optimistic as, um, you know, the big Americans who came in to save the day or whatever. So like we mentioned before, the start of at the start of the Italian realism movement, um, a lot of the aesthetics and the conventions of the movement were established because um, of the situation that Italy was in. Uh, mostly the fact that the economy was completely destroyed. Um, and that goes beyond just people being able to find a job. It's people trying to find, like, bread. Uh, so even the making of this film was strapped for cash. Um, they had a wealthy investor. They had essentially what you would call these days an angel investor who swooped in and helped finance the film. But Rosalini had to essentially just buy the film off the black market because there was no... Um, there was no film industry in Italy at the time that was big enough to support a film trade. 
of actually, when you say film, you're talking about film stock. Yeah, we're talking about the film stock. He didn't just buy the movie, and that's how they like come into existence. Celluloid, right? Yeah, back when. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, young young children back before <laughs> you recorded to an SD card or even to a mini DV tape, if you know what that is. Or um, straight to the cloud. Or, or straight to the cloud or to a VHS. You recorded on actual film strips. Um, if you've ever seen weird symbols, they look like circles um, in a theater-decorated area with with more circles within that circle. That's <laughs> that's a roll of film that went in a camera, and you recorded with that. Yeah, and we've talked about filmmakers who've had to you know, find film where they could get it uh, with Jarmusch and Stranger Than Paradise. He just got like the butts of uh, film rolls and stuff that he could just record like a scene at a time or whatever. Um, but here it's like, you know, in war strewn Italy, I, I've read, read an article where, uh, where he was just literally finding little scraps and pieces and he wasn't even able to see the film. He couldn't, um, watch dailies or rushes those are when after you shoot for a day you go back and watch the film and see if there's anything you need to reshoot right uh, that's they literally didn't have what the, i do for a living right and they didn't have the infrastructure for that so he literally was just shooting blind and then afterwards was uh had to just hope that it all pieced together and it did it did but you can you can see effects of that uh in throughout the course of the film um uh, and throughout the course of the other uh, neorealistic film that we're going to talk about today, Bicycle Thieves, where you see a couple shots here and there, like close-ups that are kind of out of focus, or here and there there's like a little jump cut on the film, like a couple frames were destroyed or just aren't there, um, and they are just like, well, we don't have any other choice, let's stitch it together, um, and they're really they don't they don't take you too much out of the film, I don't think, um, especially if you're used least. to watching old movies that aren't pristine and perfect like our digital films are today right right and a lot of those older films uh the reasons that they aren't pristine or perfect are is because um storage and restoration and archiving a film wasn't a big thing um until very recently when scorsese made it a big thing (laughs) and founded the film foundation which you should go check out if you're interested um and they had to be repieced together, so you're left with film that was decayed, and now it's been rep- replaced together. But in the case of neorealism, we're literally talking about the the production being so low budget or so scrappy that uh, you had to do that. And and you know part of it was that they had shot on location. They didn't they they shunned the studios partially because the studios weren't around for some of that time, and partially because they were shunning the kind of movies that studios made. But it would have been easier to shoot on a studio and keep, you know, keep everything controlled. You can't control the lighting when you're out in the street. You can't control sound when you're out on the street. So they kind of some of the aesthetic choices, along with the financial backdrop of these films, led to the aesthetic that you had. Um, whether because you were out on the street like that, you you just had to deal with all the problems that came along with it. And I don't think those problems take you out of these films too much. Like I notice them because it makes me blink and I watch a lot of movies. And I'm sure for anybody who's used to just watching big summer blockbusters these days, it would be very disconcerting to see something like that. But the themes and the the emotional strength behind the films are really the the main focus of these films and they get some really beautiful shots but uh i don't think like rome open city and bicycle thieves 
have stuck in the the imagination of filmmakers for as long as they have just because of their aesthetic sensibilities um i think mostly because of the themes they tackle right and i mean it's really a testament to these filmmakers who have a lot to say i mean of course after such a devastating event like world war ii you're going to have a lot to say especially for artistic people who have the means of portraying that you know visually like in film and uh, so this film covers a lot of things. Like you were saying, one of the major characters is a priest. And uh, one of the things he has to come to terms with is that one of the characters he's helping is a communist and an atheist. And uh, basically he says, I'm here to help, you know, whoever I can. I don't care if they mesh with me perfectly or not. As far as all of our political and philosophical ideas, we're on the same team, um, which is a really powerful message is is kind of this overarching the enemy of my enemy is my friend and the Nazis were the enemy of everybody so it's easy to unite people of different uh, worldviews against such a glaring evil right right and I, I do want to I do just want to take a moment and uh, talk about uh, the fact that we described Italian neorealism as dealing with everyday life and then we just described what I'm sure sounds to somebody these days is a pretty fantastical film dealing with espionage and freedom movements and war in Rome in 1945. That sounds like a lot of extreme circumstances but the point was and is that that was everyday life. Right. Between right. Four, between 40 and 45 in Italy. Like that's what they had to deal with and they wanted to tell people about that. And that's what they dealt with in this film. And it's great that we have a record of that and not in any kind of documentary way, although I'm sure there's plenty of footage of that, but this is kind of a way where an artist gets into the souls of the people living in that environment and portrays them through characters which make us feel more deeply um, in one way than any kind of documentary just uh, archival footage can do. Um, and there's one of the most striking and memorable moments in the film comes just before uh, the second half. The film is kind of broken up into two halves and is actually based on a real life event where a woman was gunned down outside of one of the ghettos uh, in Rome and it kind of having her as such a major character through the beginning of the film makes that moment just really stick with you and uh and makes it a very powerful scene yeah yeah and not to not and we haven't even mentioned the fact that that woman was uh pregnant at the time when right. when she was killed so when we're talking about these being depressing films we mean it um and, and maybe some people don't think you'd be into that um, or would enjoy these films, but they have a lot of meaning and power to them. And like you were saying, like it, it really is capturing this moment in time that only existed then. And I think nowadays you could attempt to recreate that same feeling, but at the same time, I don't think you really can because of the way that Italian neorealism worked. I mean, they even used real life people in the film instead of using professional actors you know maybe partially because professional actors were hard to come by and hard to pay but if you're going to be betraying everyday life then real life people are 
maybe the best people to try to portray that because they're the ones trying to live through that in Rome at the time. Right. One of the like most amazing things about this movie to me is that anyone could be so level headed, you know, living in that environment to create a comprehensive narrative um, like Rossellini did, uh, because I mean, I, I can't imagine having so much rage and pent up tension and stuff about this whole war and the entire situation to be able to create a very nuanced story because it is nuanced. It shows different. It even portrays one of the Nazis as, um, I don't want to say sympathetic, but like he feels the tension in himself and it's amazing that Rossellini didn't portray all the Nazis as the most despicable human beings ever, uh, at being so close to the time period like you can kind of see that nowadays we have some distance things have cooled off and maybe you could put some of that nuance in there um but it's i don't know it's it's such a striking film and it's such a great um thing to have from this time period because uh like you said i don't think we could ever get back to a point where we could make a story this raw uh as it was coming straight from the time period Right, right. It would have to be about stuff that was happening today. If if you or I or another or a contemporary filmmaker were were to make something like that, um, but even you know, it it just captures that sense of gloom and doom that hung over the city back then, and it hung over not just the Italians but the Germans too, like you were talking about, because you know when they filmed this this movie, the Ita- the Germans in the city had already been kicked out by the Americans. So there's this sense throughout the film that, yeah, the the uh, the Germans hold the city for now, but not for long. N- not for long. Like, the Americans are coming up the coast, and the British, um, the Allies are coming up the peninsula to, to kick them out as well. So there's this doom and gloom that ha- hangs over everybody. And like we said before, there are no happy endings. Um, I feel like there's a glimmer of hope at the very, very end but um, it, you really have to think about it to feel that glimmer of hope. Right. There's there's hope, but hope is often not synonymous with uh, happiness. Um, so that's what we're left with. And let's talk a little bit about the reception of the film because um, it did like gradually get up to a lot of acclaim and stuff like that, but one thing that Italian audiences wanted right after the war was escapism, which makes sense. You know, you're living in this hell. You don't necessarily want to go to the movie theater and, you know, watch your everyday life for two hours. But for people in the West and as time went on, it becomes a very, really uh, valuable piece of art because it captures a moment and an emotion that is really unique to Rome in 1944, 1945. Right. Um, and, and there's, there's been, so I, I was trying to figure this out this week. I was doing a lot of research on it to try to figure out which Italian neorealistic film was the breakout film. And some people say Obsessione by uh, Visconti. Some people say Rome Open City. Some people say Bicycle Thieves. Um, but most things I found have seemed to point towards Rome Open City to really uh, that that really grasped that critical attention 
worldwide and it didn't it didn't have a big audience release it wasn't like super popular with like u.s audiences for example but it was really popular with u.s critics um and i think part of that was its timing it came out in 1945 right when the the war ended right when there was this moment of reflection that was just starting and i feel like it was the perfect timing to pick up um the the imagination of the critic critical uh public and and capture it and open up their their eyes and their minds to uh this this new style of italian cinema that was happening and it was the critics themselves um i believe mostly the critics in europe but eventually the critics in america who came up with the name um neorealism to describe this new form of realism that uh that italy was capturing because there had been realistic movements in the past there, there's some stuff uh that happened in russia and we might be talking about that soon but uh right now we are talking about italy and neorealism so with that let's talk about maybe the most famous uh italian neorealistic film of all time bicycle thieves 1948 jonathan do you want to take us into that one uh yeah so it's really simple uh this film is about a man who doesn't have a job like a lot of people in Italy, uh, several years after the war, the war has left Italy economically bankrupt and people are poor and clamoring for jobs, getting money any way that they can. This man gets uh, an opportunity to have a job putting up posters and things, but he needs a bike uh, to ride around the city. So he they sell all their sheets and uh, stuff from their house and he buys himself a bicycle on the first day of his job, his bicycle gets stolen. And so he spends the movie trying to find his bike and then trying to come to terms with uh, this uh, turn of fortune against him uh, with his little son and um, the ways that he kind of uh, lives in denial with it and then comes to terms with it in maybe not the best way. and we'll talk yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, uh, the thing I find most striking about this film is how unbelievably simple it is, but how universal that makes it. It's almost the same way that like a fortune cookie always sounds kind of right because it's so generic that it fits you, right. but not in like a con artist kind of way. Like this movie isn't trying to con you. It's trying to show like this base basic sounding human conflict and how it applies to so many people. And I feel like almost anybody who's ever lived has had a conflict kind of like this. And I don't mean like something like a bike. I just mean something that, so, so it's less about the bike. The conflict is less about the bike and it's more about uh, wanting to fulfill a responsibility that you feel, but not being able to fulfill that. And what what can you do about it? Because he is, um, and I think, you know, you have to put yourself in the mindset of 1948 Italy when the economy is just in shambles and the infrastructure is shot to hell um, and everybody's just trying to survive and not starve to death. Um, And what do you do in that situation? And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to make a case for Maslow's uh, pyramid of needs, but your focus on like leisure time goes away and your focus on relationships decrease 
a little bit more and you go into the survival mode and the, our main character of this film is just trying to provide for his family. Like he's trying to make sure that his wife and himself and his son don't starve to death. Um, and his, his daughter, he, they have a baby too. Um, and, and he is feeling uh, all this frustration and this struggle because he found a job, he was going to do it. And then suddenly somebody stole his bike and he's, he's, completely useless now what does he do right and if you want to just like really boil it down the story is a man gets his bike stolen and he really needed that bike and you can apply that to almost any person someone gets blank stolen and they really needed blank Uh, yeah and if you can associate with that which is generic enough to apply to everybody then you can kind of understand where this film is coming from Um, which I think is why it has resonated with so many people, so many uh, filmmakers and artists uh, from all over the world. There's a a quote in the, one of the criterion articles I'll include a link to that uh, some film critic wrote um, all, all uh, film either comes from citizen Kane or bicycle thieves. Those are kind (laughs) of, (laughs) those are kind of two of the quintessential conflicts that uh films are about that's that's pretty accurate yeah so if you ever had a thought like man my life would be pretty okay right now if only that one thing hadn't happened if only that one thing had gone a certain way instead of the way it did then this movie is what 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 is what that's about and you have you can't change it you can't fix it you just have to find a way to deal with it um and so whenever you feel like this character is being kind of an asshole to his family, because he, he kind of is, especially to his son, who's traveling with him trying to find the bike again. Um, and the fact that his son is pretty adorable doesn't make it any better for the audience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, they cast like a super uh, sympathetic looking, super adorable kid to be uh, to be the son. Um, and he's so he's 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 got a great personality too. Like he's he's really nice to everybody. He really supports his father. He really loves his family. Um, basically, everything you'd want to see in an on-screen child, uh, instead of like an annoying brat from the eighties. But right. <laughs> um, but there's that complexity of you know being an asshole to the kid because uh, you feel like you failed the kid because you felt like you had a responsibility to the kid because you love the kid. Um, so loving the kid leads to you being an asshole to the kid, which is weird, but that happens all the time in real life. Yeah. And I think there's this other question or this tension throughout the film that is, um, you know, where desperation meets morality and how people respond to that. Uh, and at what point your desperation overcomes your sense of morality and forces you, uh, or, I don't know if forces is the right word, but essentially is the impetus for you making a decision that goes against uh, what you would do under normal circumstances. So we're going to kind of spoil the movie. The title almost spoils the movie. And actually, I want to talk about that in one second. But at the end, he ends up stealing someone else's bike and gets caught and kind of gets a rap on the knuckles. The the guy whose bike he stole feels bad for him and his son, and so he lets him go. Uh, but yeah. that's Especially where the tension... Especially because the kid is there. 
Right, because the kid is there. But that's where the tension leads to. And I think that's just a way for the film to kind of let us off a little bit easier um, than Roma Open City does with its characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, I mean, that's that's what this film does, is it brings this protagonist to his breaking point, to the point where he does the one thing that he has been fighting the whole movie against, which is the theft of a bicycle. Which brings me to the question, Alex. Uh, sometimes this film is translated uh, from Italian as Bicycle Thieves, and sometimes it is translated as The Bicycle Thief. And those actually create different implications for uh, the title of the movie. Do they? Explain. I think so, because if you go into a movie called The Bicycle Thief, and then the bike gets stolen within the first 20 or 30 minutes... Like, okay, that's what the bicycle thief is about. And it catches you off guard as far as um, the theft at the end. Whereas bicycle thieves makes you on the lookout for another bike theft. Or it makes you think that maybe the father and the son are going to steal a bike or something along those lines. I just, I you think know, it puts you in a different frame of mind as you're watching it, depending on how you were introduced to it. You know, I, I do get that. And I get, uh, and it does bring up a good point on like the question of how do we translate titles and how do we translate meaning between languages? Because I'm sure, you know, when you, you have to watch this in subtitles unless you speak Italian. And even if you learn Italian, you might not grasp the full nuanced meaning that happens in Italian grammar versus English grammar and all that. But I do, I do want to point out that there are multiple bicycle thieves in the beginning. Like there's, there's a squad of people who steal that bike. There's not just one guy. Yeah, there's, there's the like who, a black market for... Yeah, there's like a guy who's like a lookout and tries to slow down our main character right after his bike gets stolen. Um, and then I think there's another cover guy who was with them at the beginning and he split off um, to help cover it somehow. Um, but there were like two or three guys who stole the bike well, in the beginning. True. So so it, I, I get what you're saying and you do have a good point, but I, <laughs> I do want to point out that there are multiple bicycle thieves at the start. Yeah, it's just uh, kind of interesting that there's not a complete consensus on what the English title for the movie is. Yeah, and you're also right that the title takes on a different meaning by the end of the film than at the start of the film. Either way, once once you realize that our main character is also an attempted bicycle thief towards the end, you're like, huh, who was the titular character? Was it both of them? Was it one of them? Who knows? Um also, I do want to go back to the the climax of the film where our main character is let off with um, a rap on the knuckles, like you were talking about, a slap on the wrist. Or um, slaps in the face. Multiple. Slaps in the face, literally <laughs> slaps in the face. It was very Italian. Um, uh, yeah, this, was, this one had the most hand talking. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, welcome to Italy. Um, I, th- I thought it was like incredibly, incredibly both simple and poetic in in the sense that um, the kid was a, kind of a burden or at least felt to be a burden by our main character over the course of the film and that the main character felt like he needed, he was the one who needed to do the saving of the child, essentially the protection of the child, the supervision of the child, the support of the child. But at the very end, when the man is at the height of his crisis, it's the child who gets him out of it and protects him and saves him and supports him. Um, 
and it, it kind of like points out the importance of family even in the rough times as well as the you know the whole moral dilemma that's happening over the course of the film there's there's this just really beautiful like flip the switch that's like yeah i you can i'm supposed to support you but even when i'm not capable of supporting you you can help support me too which is you know just a really beautiful thought i think on family and the importance of family um and maybe i'm reading too much in that into that but i don't think i am no i think it's a good point and i think there's another layer almost where it throws his uh shame into relief as they're walking away uh in silence and you see his son kind of has a tear in his eye and it it kind of makes the father understand what he did even more. Like, even though we've seen all the things that lead up to it, we realize that, you know, whatever led up to it, that was still not the right course of action because he has this other layer of responsibility, not only to provide for his son, but to set the example for his son. Um, and he's, he realizes that he failed in, uh, in one of the ways he didn't necessarily fail in providing for his son because those forces were out of his control, but in setting the example, he missed a mark and we essentially, he realizes that and he's going to, you know, do whatever it takes to do the provision in the right way from then on. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like it's, um, like all those things have made this film, um, super, universal in terms of relatability and super long lived in terms of um, prominence and especially film school culture, um, which as we'll get to will uh, has and continues to impact indie film and film school brats to this day. Uh, but also it shows this fact that you can make a really great film out of a really simple topic, um, which is not something that Hollywood I think really grasped um, before 1960. Um, all you know, there is this idea, and it's a good idea. It's not a wrong idea. It's just a different idea that film is supposed to be super fantastical and big and large and something that you don't see every day. Um, what you consider escapism and bicycle thieves is the opposite of that. It, it's it's an everyday struggle. Um, it's what, you know, your average city dweller, your average New Yorker would call like a really, a really crappy day. Um, except they would, they would say it a little ruder than I did. Um, when, when your bike got stolen. Uh, but in this, in this case, it's almost life or death. Not really, but definitely like survivability, but it is this really simple topic. Just somebody's bike got stolen. I'm going to make a movie about it. And it turned out to be really good. Um, and I love that that idea was introduced. It gives you a wider spectrum of films to look at, of films that deal with stuff that's really big. You know, think Star Wars, think um, Cleopatra, think one of the older movies like Ben Hur, The Ten Commandments, and then think about like this essentially microfilm like Bicycle Thieves that deals with, like I said before, and we've said I think ten times by now. I'm sure <laughs> somebody's bike got stolen. That's it. Um, except that's not it. And it shows that importance of everyday life. And I think that's what um, the especially Italian audiences grasped, uh, latched onto in, in post-World War II is that they related to this stuff um, and, and it sympathized with them and their plight. Yeah, and I think there's definitely a place and there, there 
we've established niches within uh, cinema for the epic and the everyday. And this definitely falls more into the everyday. Um, it's almost a, a Capra-esque film centering on one person just with a sad ending. Um, and what, one thing that I think is interesting is that the the way that things have changed, that it would be a lot harder to make a film this simple that covers the same um, the same conflict, I guess, because of the way that economies have changed. <laughs> um, because it's so easy to kind of, you know, pick up a job as an Uber or uh, rent a room as an Airbnb or whatever, that it's well, almost, there's, there's not one path to making making ends meet, I guess. Well, there certainly is um, an argument uh, to be made throughout the film that, uh, and, and it does happen over the course of like one or two days. Like it doesn't last very long. Um, so it's not really like a plot problem within the film because I'm sure this is what happened the next day after the events of this film took place. But he could always go back to the job line and try to find a job doing something else that didn't need a bike. Um but I would liken it to like today if somebody who made his living on Uber um, and he he had like a beat, beat up old car, but it was good enough to be like an Uber pool or whatever. Um, and, and that was how he made his living. Like, what if that got stolen or what if it broke down and he could not make a living for like a week and he had to survive for a week without it? Or like it was stolen and he had like a week to find it to make rent. Um, or something along those lines. And I'm sure something like that has happened to an actual Uber driver or somebody who has an Airbnb and suddenly there's something wrong with his apartment. It needs to be fumigated. It needs, it has a water leak and he can't rent out part of it anymore. Um, which I, I think, so I think it's still applicable in a modern, a modern sense. Yeah. It just changes the dynamics. It's almost that old conflict of how do you make a, uh, a suspense or thriller movie like in the 30s and 40s but with cell phones where everyone has access to everyone else you have to kind of come up with excuses for why can't they reach out to people we have all of these ways to reach out to people and stuff like that so right. just interesting how modern times changes the dynamic of conflicts as simple as this one why didn't you just DM me on Twitter bro <laughs> right why didn't he just buy a bike lock Right. Um, he, I mean, nowadays he probably had a tracker on his bike or something like that. Yeah, but. Bike locks would have would have uh, made this whole movie obsolete. All right. So we've talked about kind of the life and death conflict of World War Two, the post World War Two economic everyday um, struggles conflict. Now let's move on to the black sheep of this podcast with eight and a half, which is um, about a very different kind of conflict. Uh, you want to set us up for that, Alex? Yeah, man. It's another meta movie. Oh, man. There's so many meta movies. Um, I almost feel like we could do a meddlings podcast, but <laughs> just about movies about movies. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not I'm not that dogmatic when it comes to what kind of movies I like. I like a lot of different movies. So let's talk about eight and a half from 1963, which is arguably Fellini's semi autobiographical film about being a neorealistic filmmaker. And he's struggling over the course of the film to make a movie and also keep his life together. He's got a mistress. He's got a wife. He's got a 
fantasies about every other woman in his life. Yeah, yeah. He keeps having flashbacks that are um, Freudian in nature, to say the least. Um, Definitely kind of unhealthy. Maybe it is. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. No, probably unhealthy, yeah. (laughs) Disturbing, if nothing else. Yeah, it's it's meant to be a little off-putting, I think. I think it's at least meant to be a little off-putting. And, and, you know, we're definitely coming from a different culture, uh, at least somewhat, uh, based, you know, from Italy to much more conservative uh, in America. But still, um, he, he, like, has fantasies about, like, really elaborate harems with like their own set of (laughs) set of rules about when women are supposed to be removed and uh, he has fantasies about all the different women in his life Um, but he also he also has like you know the film problems he's got a producer who is almost 120% sure in the mob like he looks he's (laughs) supposed to be like a stereotypical uh, mafioso so he's got problems but his biggest problem over the course of the film is that he's completely blocked creatively. He, he can't, he's trying to make a movie about his experiences in life, which ironically enough is what Fellini is doing, um, in the, in making eight and a half, but Fellini does a good job of it. He manages to stitch it together to create this, um, this creative struggle and this, uh, life balancing struggle act over the course of the film, but the main character is struggling to put together uh, the events of his life to create a meaningful film, which you know kind of comes back to uh, the neorealistic movement, which is supposed to be about adding meaning to everyday life. Um, and his inability to do that in eight and a half is kind of echoing his experience um, as a growing filmmaker. But also at the same time, if you want to look at it a little differently, um, he's trying to, he can't create meaning in a film about the events in his own life. And that's kind of saying he can't find meaning in his own life, which, um, is existential as heck. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, making a movie about a film director, there's a lot of criticism in the movie of criticism of things like symbolism of, um, his, uh, I guess, I don't know, it's his, his like, co-writer slash editor or something on the script keeps giving him all this advice like it's not philosophical enough he doesn't have deep enough conflict and all of these things which is kind of what you're thinking about through the movie and then it's like he's like i don't know about these symbols what about what's up with this woman who keeps showing up in white and he offers him a glass of water and we had just seen that in the movie um the movie is like so self-referential and um as as we've been saying it's so meta that it's and and it's kind of disjointed it also has a lot of surrealist influences the first thing that happens is uh he flies out of a car um and gets pulled down by a string uh so it's crazy it's kind of hard to describe as one plot i mean i guess the running thread is he's trying to get this movie done he doesn't have it written so he's stalling they build this huge set and waste a ton of money and then the movie falls apart. Uh, but that's not really what the movie's about. That's just kind of the, uh, yeah. the thread. Yeah, and he might or might not be dead at the end. We don't, we don't even know. Yeah, because um, I don't... I mean, we don't know if what we're seeing all the time is a fantasy or if it's the actual um, 
character doing things because we'll unexpectedly jump into a flashback or a fantasy and then we'll come out of it and it'll be him describing the scene that we just saw as a pitch for the movie. And then people would be like, oh, no, that's dumb. And we're like, okay, so wait, is that actually his flashback? Is that just a scene idea? What is happening? (laughs) Yeah, but at the same time, it's an incredibly enjoyable and pretty film to watch. Um, It's in black and white, and I know a lot of people don't like black and white films, but you should give them a try. I feel like if you're a dedicated listener of this podcast or if you enjoy listening to us at all, you'll like black and white films. So... Go check it out. It's really pretty. And the black and diff- white is used brilliantly. It's used really well. Um, there's a lot of symbolic imagery. It's it's lit fantastically. And there's they've got this fantastic score going on in the background. And I'm not very well music- musically educated, completely tone deaf. I could not name canon for the life of me. But it sounds like classic composers. I could be wrong, but it sounds like them. Um... But it's, it's actually, this- I did a little bit of research on the score, um, and it's a composer uh, named uh, Nino Rota, I think, but his music is very classical. He wrote some operas and symphonies and stuff like that, and he takes in a lot of um, influence from, like, Wagner. He uses uh, The Ride of the Valkyries, which, if you're familiar with um, Apocalypse Now, is the famous helicopter song. Um, so it is very classically influenced, but it is specific for the film. Yeah. And, uh, this film kind of has this musicality about it, like you said, with the score. Um, and it feels like this moving visual art piece at times, kind of like, um, a Terrence Malick film, like think the thin red line. Um, if you've seen it, it's really pretty, uh, aside from just the message behind it, but, uh, it's got this flowing, uh, beauty to it that just makes it fun to watch like sometimes i i almost just wanted to turn off the the subtitles because i kind of know italian but not enough to watch it without subtitles um just turn it off and just enjoy the look of the film because it's just so easy to just watch and it just guides you through all of this complete absurd craziness that happens over the course of the film um especially towards the end which is just bonkers um but it's just really pretty and easy to watch yeah, and there are a lot of film critics who kind of describe it as almost a dance. Like the whole film is almost this choreographed dance of camera and actors and stuff. And a lot of times the acting kind of feels artificial, but I think that's also part of the point of the movie is to draw your attention to the fact that it's a movie, that it's staged, and um, all of this because that's one of the major themes. So sometimes the acting is over the top. Sometimes the situations are fantastical. Um, a lot of times you have, uh, very archetypal contrasts, like, um, the director Guido's wife is often in white and his mistress is almost always in black. So you have this Hitchcockian, um, female character, uh, contrast going on. Um, and, uh, what you were saying about the, the dialogue and being able to understand it, it's all, it's a very fast paced movie. Like all of this happens it kind of just all flies by your eyes. And that's part of the film is to talk about the chaos of the film business and um, also to present a mental state of someone who's trying to make all these decisions and stuff like that. So it can be easy to lose track of, but it's also interesting that he's he's got a bunch of actors in his movie 
from different countries. There's like an American woman and a French woman and obviously all the Italian characters. So you have all of these languages mixing and flowing and uh, and it's really crazy how it all works. And I think a lot of it is actually improvised, which makes sense. But it's fascinating just to watch and experience. Yeah. So there's all those aesthetic uh, choices that aren't neorealistic. Um, like it doesn't feel like it was shot entirely on location and it definitely wasn't depicting uh, everyday life with all of those fantasies. Um, it, it is a metadrama um, and it is by a neorealistic director who is reflecting on his time as a neorealistic director, um, but it isn't, it isn't real, really neorealism. Um, and just looking at the themes of the film, it it definitely isn't because it is more lighthearted. It might have had a sad ending, but we don't really know because it's, it's like so Bird surreal. Man. It's kind of like Birdman. Actually, that In a is lot a of perfect, it, it's a perfect idea for the ending. Either it ended fantastically or somebody killed themselves. So, yeah, as in fantastically, as in kind of a fantasy ending, um, not fantastically like that was great. Yeah, although it was great. Right. It was great. Um, that's typically what we mean when we talk about the fantastical um, on on this podcast. In case you're wondering, um, go for that default. <laughs> Even though we try we try to watch mostly movies we think were, are fantastic or will be fantastic. And then sometimes there's King Kong 1976 and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, anyway. But yeah, the conflict is much more um, kind of relating to a more bourgeois class of society, almost back to a, a Bunuelian criticism of the way that people with money and position act and uh, spend their time, as opposed to our other two movies, which are about very poor people who act in a way to get them from day to day. Uh, so it's an interesting contrast. It seems the farther that we go from World War II the lower the stakes in the conflict of these movies become, at least in the films that we chose for this week. Yeah, yeah. And remember, that timeline that we marked out for what's mostly considered the neorealistic movement is 43 to 52. And this film was made almost a decade after that, in 1963, when the economy in Europe was starting to boom in uh, the beginning of the Cold War and definitely the end of the post-war period. Um, so there weren't those same everyday struggles. I mean, obviously there are everyday struggles. That's just a fact of life, but there weren't in the same sense as bicycle thieves. There weren't as many people whose livelihoods hinged on these small little conflicts. And there wasn't anybody occupying Rome, um, other than the actually actual <laughs> right. Italians who owned it. So, um, there wasn't the same existential uh, stakes like you were talking about or the the dread surrounding the making of this film or the country that this film was made in yeah and the other the other changes whereas the other two um had at least uh, a tinge of negative reception right away from uh the italians who saw it some people thought that bicycle thieves portrayed italians in too much of a negative light stealing things and all that kind of stuff this one immediately and universally was acclaimed by critics and moviegoers and across the board it was just everyone loved this movie right off the bat 
Yeah, there were a few critics who I've read thought it was too confusing. Um, Understandable. And, and I'm, I'm kind of like, that's that was the point. Right. Uh, here and there for it to be a little confusing and nonspecific. Um, and it's definitely not a film that I, you want to overthink while you're watching it. Like, just enjoy it and let it stick with you. Uh, one one critic I read especially uh, specifically said, if you think of it as an emotional piece and an emotional journey, it sticks with you for a very long time. And that's what I tried to do, and I think it worked really well. Um, it just sticks with you. And it's, especially if you're ever have or want to be or are currently trying to do something creative and you're finding it hard to make decisions um which over the course of this film i think the main character doesn't make any decisions he always just blows off the question or says i don't know um and that's why the movie falls apart (laughs) right um then i then i think you can connect to this person's struggle um especially if you've ever tried to bring anything from your own life into a creative piece and found it not working and the other thing is like trying to think of it as a whole is hard because it's kind of it's kind of like segments like each scene is so memorable but it's kind of jarringly transitioned between them it's almost again like going back to uh the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie where it's all of these different scenes where really interesting things happen uh even if we're not totally sure how we got from one to the other, whether it was through a dream or through a fantasy or whatever. And that's actually one of the lines in the movie. Uh, they're talking about his film and they're like, oh, we're really going to have this like spaceship, this whole scene in your thing. And he was like, what, do you like movies where nothing happens? In my movie, I'm going to have all kinds of things happen. And that's kind of what the film feels like because the film in a way is talking about itself anytime it's re- referencing Guido's movie that he's making in the movie right and of course anytime you're referencing guido you're kind of referencing fellini not 100 percent, of course but i feel that that's where the seed of the project came from right but yeah you have to wonder like how much is he bearing his soul if, if we're do if we're doing a one-to-one on guido and fellini because of uh guido is not portrayed in the most um favorable light and that's actually mentioned in the movie too he said uh the first one of the first things that the script critic says is um you know th- your your protagonist is not likable uh i don't know if that's a problem or not but you you've given him no likable qualities and that's what we get the sense of a little bit throughout the film is we're just watching this guy who makes a lot of bad decisions uh get frustrated with the outcome of those decisions throughout the film yeah yeah and it's got uh, our old friend's subjective narration at hand, for sure. Um, back when you were talking about just a moment ago um, how some of the acting is a little over the top here and there, I feel like a lot of the characters are designed to be how Guido sees that person in his life. Um, whether it's his wife being really, really dramatic, maybe she isn't that dramatic, but Guido definitely thinks she's that dramatic. So we find her to be super dramatic. And of course, as the movie progresses, especially towards the end, the characters become basically caricatures of themselves. Um, certainly in the last sequence, which is this weird, fantastical band, grand band, <laughs> grand performance, grand marching downstairs sequence. Um, every character thing, we seen yeah. was a caricature of themselves. They're over the top. Um, but at the same time, as subjective as those characters as some of those choices feel the movie is also analyzing guido himself so it is at both once subjective within guido and 
objective with outside of Guido looking in on Guido. Um, kind of Guido's view of himself, but also like what we think of Guido. So just just to tie you into more of a Gordian knot about what you think of the viewpoints on this film. Um, but it, it feels like it makes sense. It's relatable. Um, and like we've mentioned before on the podcast, one of the things that film is great at is conveying emotions and really complex ideas or feelings that can't be spoken uh, through words, that can't be communicated through language, um, and need their own language, that cinematic rhetoric to be effectively communicated from one person the, or set of people, the filmmakers, to the audience. Yeah, and that definitely comes through with the cinematography and the editing, because, um, again, it's very fantastical and it's not as almost documentary-ish as Bicycle Thieves or Rome Open City was. And right. one more thing I want to mention just technically uh, about the film that carries over from Italian neorealism is the fact that every character is blatantly dubbed, uh, redubbed over. I don't think any of the mouths match the dialogue in this film. Um, and that was almost an intentional technical choice by Fellini, which I think is interesting because I think in 63, that's not a necessity. Like we know how to sync our audio and our video uh, pretty easily at that point, especially once the Italian film economy had gotten back to its uh, normal strength. Yeah, um, this wasn't a cash strap production by any means. Yeah. And I was noticing it throughout the throughout the film that even in the languages that I didn't understand and was having to read the subtitles for like the mouths and the words did not match at all. I think they literally had the actors just kind of mouth random words when they were filming. And then they added, <laughs> they actually wrote a lot of the script in post and they would just add the lines in afterwards when they're recording the, uh, the ADR. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally believe that. Um, I noticed it here and there, but for the most part I was too wrapped up in, uh, in the weirdness of it all. To, yeah. to really focus in on it or just just like you you i feel like you sympathize with the other characters in the film who just really want guido to make a decision and not only a decision but like a good decision um what well, by the end of, just any decision <laughs> really just any decision and i feel like um as an audience member i was brought into that camp really easily and really fast because it is frustrating to watch him just not make any decisions and just be so um, indecisive about everything so you find yourself spending a lot of time in the film just being like make a decision already <laughs> um, so something like the weird dubbing because they wrote half the dialogue in post maybe not too big of a deal because it is an engrossing film yeah and it actually fits in with those themes because he didn't uh, Fellini wouldn't have had to make a whole lot of decisions on the day of shooting and he could he could kind of postpone his decision on you know what things mean or what people are saying later on in post-production uh procrastinating <laughs> anyway with that let's slide in to our overall notes and talk about all of our films together italian neorealism and italian film in general and what we've learned today and its effect on films in the future so yeah i think we've already kind of mentioned the difference in outlook and viewpoint uh, in these films from what uh, we as Americans are used to, especially since during World War II and 
that era, we had directors like Frank Capra, um, who kind of kept spirits high and looked at the the little man and the, the poor man and said, you can do it. You can be whatever you want to be, because that's basically what Capra was. And <laughs> actually kind of ties into this week because he was a Sicilian, came to America very poor and worked his way up to one of the great uh, American directors. But in Italy, after the war, after the war destroyed almost everything, uh, we get a very different viewpoint that is not as optimistic because things did not always look up. They didn't always know, hey, yeah, we're going to pull through this and we're going to win. And so we get a very different outlook. And it's interesting for us from this culture to have that perspective shown in these movies, like we were saying, portrayed dramatically and fictionally, but I think that that sentiment and those conflicts are not necessarily fictional. Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, this uh, this entire movement is called neorealism because it's grounded in trying to convey that that real struggle of everyday life, life on the streets in Italy after World War II, um, and and trying to struggle to survive that. Um, and and I feel like that's important not just because it shaped film but also because of its effect on art in general like world war ii had such a huge impact on the course of art and how that art influenced uh the future generations that grew up with that art and this is just a small little snippet a small little moment of that that we are talking about when we talk about italian neorealism and post-world war ii italian film in general um and i think it's important at for anybody who loves art and loves thinking about art or looking at art or just enjoying film uh, to think about that because the, the, the impact of world war two and the pessimistic um, if with a glimmer of hope at the end, as I feel like there is in every neorealistic film, if you search for it, or maybe I'm just an optimist, I don't know. <laughs> um, it's, it's impacted the films that we watch today even. So it's it's got this long reaching effect it's a long reaching arm um so even if you're not into watching old films or films that aren't in your native language um knowing about them can be kind of fun yeah and it's always it's always interesting to have a wide range of you know films to pull from that aren't that don't always have a happy ending um even if they are on a positive trajectory like Rome Open City, you know, is leading up to the liberation of Rome, even if the individual characters that we're involved with don't come to a happy ending um, and have that in this big pile called film history with films like Frank Capra that takes, you know, the World War II outlook, but puts it in a more positive light. Um, so having there's a, there's a place for all kinds of films and all kinds of outlooks. Um, and you know, there's a reason that we're still drawn to these, that American directors still go back to bicycle thieves and go back to Rome, open city because they hit at core fundamental human issues. And that's one of the things that we always talk about is if you can get to something that applies across cultures, uh, regardless of if the stakes are the same as they were in world war two, because 
let's pray that we never get to a point where our stakes are as high as they were in World War II. Um, they can still have a relevance for us and still pull us out of a time when we aren't in the best of places and are feeling more pessimistic, but realizing that there is a glimmer of hope and there is still a better and a worse way to act in a certain situation, regardless of uh, the desperation that your circumstances have put you in. Right. And I do want to take a moment and just make a case for the glimmer of hope that I've been talking about in both of the neorealistic films we talked about this week um, with Bicycle Thieves and with Rome Open City. Because Rome Open City, and we're in the spoiler section now, just quick heads up. Um, but Rome Open City ends with the priest being shot, and most of the agents are dead. Um, and the little kid liberation group sees the priest get shot. But then we see the little kid liberation group walk back to Rome. And the only thing left in the, the screen at the end, in the frame at the end, are the kids walking towards Rome. Um and, and one we, of them puts his arm over one of the other ones, I think. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. A comforting it did. gesture. Yeah, but it feels like those kids are gonna be the future. Those kids are still around. Nothing bad happened to the kids, other than the fact that one's surrogate father died, which is bad. But they're still around. They're still alive. They're still fighting for freedom. And they're going back to the city. We don't see the Nazi soldiers walking back to the city. We see the kids walking back to the city. And I feel like that is our glimmer of hope at the end of, of that movie. And then if we go over to Bicycle Thieves, yeah, he doesn't. He obviously is going to lose his job because he doesn't have a bike at the end of the film. But he doesn't get arrested, which is pretty good. Um, and also, his his relationship with his son has been cemented. Um and it feels like they're walking off into the sunset with, yeah, it's sad. They didn't get what they wanted. Their main goal of the film was failed. But I feel like they're going to be okay, even though they walk off into the sunset um, without a bike. You know, they have each other. They have their family. Um, the mom makes money somehow. The kid makes money somehow. And again, maybe I'm just rationalizing. Um, I'm not coming from a post-World War II perspective. Um, I'm not uh, that... I'm not from that time of pessimism. Um, so I'm probably applying some optimistic viewpoints to this, but um, I still think that that is a glimmer of hope at the end that the family still supports themselves. And like I was talking about before, um, when the father was in need, the son saved him. And it feels like if in the future, if the son is in need, the father will save him somehow. Right. And so as we were saying, those are the things that resonate with us, but they also resonate with, other cultures and they have had an influence on the French New Wave, uh, which is a movement of films from the 50s and 60s in France, which was heavily influenced by the Italian films uh, and the kind of almost guerrilla filmmaking um, of those movies. Guerrilla filmmaking being uh, very unsanctioned, very uh, just get it, whatever you have to do, get the shot. Um, yeah, you're and running, then, running gun with a really small crew. Right. And then it also trickles over into American film noir, which has a much more pessimistic uh, worldview than a lot of American films had up to that point. Um, and film noir was influenced by the French New Wave and Italian neorealism. So it's kind of this snowball effect of um, films that we can still see today. Like there's still movies being released that kind of have that 
darker, pessimistic um, look to them. You look at films like Nightcrawler and Drive and stuff like that. They have this uh, running, you know, moral ambiguousness to them. And uh, so that that's an interesting impact that has not faded away completely. Yeah. And I'm going to I'm going to take it a couple steps farther here. Um, both neorealism and the French New Wave ended up impacting the American New Wave, which was, um, think uh, Easy Rider, think Bonnie and Clyde, a bunch of those indie films that came about in the 60s and helped completely crash the studio system at the time, which in turn led to the development of the film brat generation, think George Lucas, think Spielberg, who created the summer blockbuster market, which is the market we're still on today. Um, so when I was talking about just a second ago, so how Alex, are you II, saying that we have bicycle thieves to thank for transformers? Um, <laughs> yes and no. So I would say bicycle thieves created the mar- helped lead to a chain of events that helped create the market, um, in which summer blockbusters could exist, but that summer blockbusters like transformers exist because some filmmakers who have never seen bicycle thieves <laughs> are allowed to make movies. Um, I'm not the, naming any names, but I'm just saying. of history are woven in strange ways. They are. They are. And there's this cascading effect. Um, if you've ever listened to a history podcast, I've got a long list. In fact, I'll tweet a list um, <laughs> in case you're ever interested in looking at how everything in fe- affects everything else. But the same is very true for art. So uh, as well as, you know, like geopolitical things like World War II. Um, I mean, you can trace World War II back to the original division of Charlemagne's kingdom in the 700s, but we're not going to go there. Um, We are talking about film. Uh, And I just want to say that even if you don't like old movies, even if the only thing you like is blockbusters, um, old movies are worth a study here and there, or at least being knowledgeable about, um, because they're the reason those blockbusters exist. Uh, the line between uh, something like Bicycle Thieves and Transformers 5, The Last Night, or whatever the heck it's called, uh, may not be super clear, but it's there. Um, and it's especially there for good current films uh, that you like watching. Yeah, and other medium, like you were saying with uh, um, Master of None, how the new season of Master of None takes a lot of these influences from classic Italian cinema and classic French cinema um, and weaves them in. And new indie artsy movies will have probably these connections much uh, clearer because those are the kind of movies that influence those uh, young artsy uh, creators. So if you're interested in those kind of films, definitely check out these kind of films because they're almost all coming from this place. Right. Right. Uh, season uh, Episode 1, Season 2 of Master of None is Bicycle Thieves, just with a phone. Um, I won't say more than that because I don't want to spoil it, but that you know that's our free plug of the week. Go watch Ma- season, <laughs> uh, Episode 1, Season 2 of Master of None, and let us know what you think. It might be seem a little pretentious, but anything referring to uh, old art often is, I mean, our podcast is probably pretentious as hell to anybody who isn't <laughs> interested in film to the degree we are, or even fractionally, but, um, I hope you still enjoy it. 
And uh, another creator that we've talked about before that was influenced by these kind of films um, and can be called pretentious is uh, Shane Carruth of Primer and Upstream Color uh, Notability. And his films are very influenced from these. And he puts his own spin on that style. He takes it as an influence. And instead of kind of copying it, he kind of spends it into his own thing, which is um, equally weird morally and just comprehensibly ambiguous <laughs> right 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 basically anybody who's ever been to film school knows about these movies these are film school staples a lot of what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks are film school staples that's but why we're talking about that, that but yeah but don't don't let that dissuade you don't think that they're pretentious just because of that a lot of that pretentiousness is because they've been in film school so much and because you associate it with um, a pretentious liberal liberal arts kid, um, which you know they often are, but that doesn't mean they're bad movies or that they're silly movies or that they're superfluous movies. Um, in fact, they're quite important and they're studied for a reason. So don't let the fact that they are studied dissuade you from studying them. Right. And on that note, uh, let's talk about our next stop on the world tour. Voted on by you guys on our Twitter account, at the Filmlings. Uh, we are going to France to study the French New Wave, the uh, natural offspring from this week. Uh, and so, Alex, you want to tell us what movies we will be looking at? You know I do, Jonathan. Um, so our first film for next week is The 400 Blows from 1959 by Francois Truffaut. Um Classic movie, classic director, probably heard of him, even if you don't know who he is. Um, our second film is Breathless from 1960 by Jean-Luc Godard, the other classic French film director, um, who you've probably heard of, even though you might not know what he does. Um, and then lastly, we have Cleo from 5 to 7 from 1962 by Agnes Farda, um, another French film director, even though I think she was born in Belgium. Um also really good also in the french new wave um as you can see all three films take place well after or not well after like a decade after uh the italian uh neorealism movement so it's going to be an interesting look at a new movement that was spawned by the last movement we talked about um and then probably take it a step farther than the last movement did as we get farther and farther away from the glossy productions of pre-world <laughs> war ii on the film links yeah, and uh, so this conversation will basically continue. It'll almost be a sequel episode. And we've mentioned the 400 Blows before, I believe, in the Wes Anderson episode because there's almost a direct reference to it in Rushmore. So uh, Anderson is another director that uh, we can mention in this list of directors influenced by these two movements, and I'm sure we'll talk about him lots next week. Yeah, if you've ever thought a director seems a little pretentious then they're probably copying <laughs> or influenced by France and Italy. Um, so there you go. There you go. Or and let me just say, good job picking listeners. You picked really well. Um, Italy and France go very well together as a one-two punch. So good job. Well, that's about all the time we have in Italy for now. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlings.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next week. All right. See you in France.
Wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> Make that the tag. It's so creepy. <laughs>